This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 179th edition of the program. Today is Friday, February 8th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, all of which either signed up just this last week to support us or increased their monthly pledge. And that includes Aaron Washington, Charity Samuelson, Daniel S., David Garber, Gary Nutt, Jacqueline Kramer, and Ryan Underwood. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report so on today's show we'll talk about the many 2020 democratic party presidential candidates that are now backing off of medicare for all sherrod brown outright admitted that he's against it elizabeth warren kind of pulled a kamala harris and claimed that she's now open to many paths towards medicare for all and cory booker made it clear that he's not willing to really fight because he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. And we'll talk about Howard Schultz's ignorance and lies when it comes to the issue of healthcare and how that's affecting his poll numbers. And while we're on the subject of 2020 candidates, I'm not going to go too deep into Cory Booker's record, but we will be talking about his history of pushing for privatization of education in the form of charter schools and how problematic and devastating that has been in his city of Newark. Also, we'll talk about Michael Moore's take on 2020, the net neutrality court case, Donald Trump's endorsement of Bible classes and public schools, and a lot more. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. It's encouraging to see that most of the prominent Democratic Party 2020 presidential candidates all support Medicare for all, at least in rhetoric. What they say matters, supporting Medicare for all vocally, even if... I may be a little bit skeptical about whether or not they'd fight for Medicare for All. That is important. It does matter. And I do give them credit for that. But with that being said, since most of them are backing Medicare for All, what we have to do is be thorough. We have to be nuanced. And we have to distinguish between the candidates who are just supporting Medicare for All because they want to pass the progressive litmus test and the candidates who actually would be willing to fight for Medicare for All. Now, as these candidates launch their 2020 presidential campaigns, they are making our jobs easier for us because they're making it very clear that they're not willing to fight very hard for Medicare for All. Last week, Kamala Harris backtracked on Medicare for All and talked about there being many paths towards Medicare for All, which is code for, I'm willing to settle for something less than Medicare for All, and then we'll worry about that down the line. Well, if you have someone with that mentality who's not willing to fight for Medicare for All now, then you're not going to get Medicare for All because we need someone like Bernie Sanders who is willing to plant their feet firmly in the ground and not budge. No matter how much pressure they face, they've got to fight for Medicare for All and not back down. Kamala Harris last week revealed that she's not serious about Medicare for All. Kirsten Gillibrand the week before made it clear that she's not serious about Medicare for All because she would not be willing to get rid of the filibuster. Well, if you want any progressive policies to be passed, 
then why wouldn't you get rid of the filibuster? Republicans got rid of it for Supreme Court nominees, people who will serve on the Supreme Court for decades, but you won't be willing to get rid of the filibuster for a policy like Medicare for All that would actually save lives? Well, that tells me you're not serious about Medicare for All. And now this week, we have more candidates who are showing their cards, and this time it's Elizabeth Warren, who basically pulled a Kamala and said that she's also open to multiple paths when it comes to Medicare for All. Now, I called it like it was last week when Kamala Harris said this, and I said it was a flip-flop. Now, just because I like Elizabeth Warren doesn't mean I'm going to handle her with kid gloves here. I'm going to call this what it is. This is her backing away from Medicare for All. She may not be explicitly backing away from Medicare for All, saying I no longer support it, but what she's saying here is basically the hint that she's not going to be a true fighter about Medicare for All when it comes to Medicare for All. And this is something that I initially speculated about Elizabeth Warren. I didn't necessarily believe that she would be as vocal about fighting for Medicare for All as someone like Bernie Sanders would be, but nonetheless, she's kind of confirming that my instincts about her were correct. So in an interview with Bloomberg, she was asked about whether or not she would support the abolition of private health insurance companies under a Medicare for All system. She was asked twice and completely dodged the question, but the dodge isn't necessarily the thing that worries me. It's the way that she spoke about healthcare that worried me the most. Is there room for private health insurance in your vision of the ideal American healthcare system? So let's start with the battle we're having right now and talk about the things we need to be doing because I don't want to lose sight of this. Okay. It's, it's good to talk about our overall goal. And here's our overall goal. This is what distinguishes Democrats from Republicans. Democrats believe health care is a basic human right. And we fight for basic human rights. Our obligation is to make sure that everybody gets coverage at the lowest possible cost to all of us. So what does that mean? Right now, it means fighting the Republicans who are trying to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. We've got this lawsuit going on down in Texas where the Republicans are trying to do what they couldn't do with the votes, and that is trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, to make it okay to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, to cut off access to health care for millions of Americans. So job number one is to defend the Affordable Care Act. Job number two is to make changes where we need to make them right now. Changes to hold insurance companies accountable when they're trying to cheat people, when they're trying to scam people. Changes right now in what's happening with drugs, uh, prescription drugs. Uh, we need to lower the cost of prescription drugs. One in four Americans say they can't take drugs that are prescribed to them because they can't afford to pay for them. I have, for example, here a proposal for generic drugs, which are about 90% of all the prescriptions that people fill, to be able to bring those costs down to just a nominal cost. And the third, how do we get universal coverage? Medicare for all, lots of paths for how to do that. But we know where we are aiming, and that is that every American has health care at a price that they can afford and that the overall costs in the system are held as low as possible. Well, right now, your vision for Medicare for all, would it include, would it all be a public option or would it include uh, private insurance? So right now we've got multiple, there are multiple bills on the floor in the United States Senate. I've signed on to Medicare for all. I've signed on to another one that gives an option for buying into Medicaid. There are different ways we can get there, but the key has to be always keep the center 
of the bullseye in mind, and that is affordable health care for every American. So obviously, she dodged the question. She didn't want to state unequivocally whether or not she will or won't get rid of private insurance. And look, even if you are personally opposed to the abolition of private health insurance companies under a Medicare for all type system, what you should at least start with is getting rid of them. So that way, when negotiations inevitably go to the floor and you're debating on whether or not, you know, you should compromise on this area, you're starting the negotiations from a position of strength. So she starts by saying, we have multiple jobs as Democrats. First of all, we've got to defend the Affordable Care Act. I mean, I agree, but it's kind of too late for that. It's already essentially been gutted by Donald Trump and Republicans. It may have been death by a thousand cuts. It wasn't like a big blow to it all at once. But nonetheless, the Affordable Care Act has been gutted. So, I mean, sure, do what you can to protect that. Don't make that your only focus when it comes to healthcare. She also says, job number two is to make changes where we need to make them right now. Changes to hold insurance companies accountable. Changes right now in what's happening with drugs. Again, have no problem with that. She recently proposed in December a bill that would essentially allow for a public option when it comes to the United States creating their own generic prescription drugs. I unequivocally support that. I think that that type of legislation is game-changing. It would save lives, literally. No problems whatsoever with these first two jobs, she says, that Senate Democrats have. Where we start to get into problematic territory is when she gets into job number three. Listen carefully to what she says here. I'm going to read her quote. How do we get to universal coverage? She says that's what's really important. Medicare for all. Okay, this is good. Now, she says this, quote, lots of paths for how to do that. But we know where we are aiming, and that is that every American has healthcare at a price that they can afford, and that the overall costs in the system are held as low as possible. Now, she also said that she signed onto multiple bills in the Senate, Medicare for all, a Medicaid buy-in, but she emphasizes, quote, always keep the center of the bullseye in mind, and that is affordable healthcare for every American. Now, why is this troublesome? I know that a lot of people might just instinctively think that I'm being nitpicky and I'm attacking her based on semantics, but when politicians say things, you really have to decode what they're saying because oftentimes even people we like, like Elizabeth Warren, they will use doublespeak because they want to obfuscate about the point that they're really trying to make. So when Elizabeth Warren talks about getting to Medicare for all by, you know, taking multiple paths. What that means is she's not serious about fighting for Medicare for all right now, because while she personally may view Medicare for all as an aspirational goal, something that we might want to achieve one day, well, for now, if it's easier for us to just quickly expand coverage by opting for a Medicaid buy-in, then we should do that. If a public option We'll have an easier time passing. Let's just do that right now. But what happens when you choose to compromise on healthcare before negotiations even begin? Whatever you're proposing will get watered down even more. So let's say you start from the firmest Medicare for all position where you want to ban insurance companies from even existing within your version of Medicare for all. Well, that ultimately will get watered down. You may land at Medicare for all with supplemental private insurance. Just know that whenever you start negotiations, you need to start from the strongest position possible. Otherwise, you're not going to land 
where you want to land if Medicare for All is truly your goal. Second of all, when you say there are multiple paths to Medicare for All and you opt for something that's healthcare reform that's not Medicare for All, basically anything short of Medicare for All will be really difficult to achieve in and of itself. We saw how a right-wing healthcare bill, the Affordable Care Act, could barely pass. Republicans didn't support it. So if you waste all of this political capital you have fighting for something that's not Medicare for all, that will still leave people without health care, you're wasting your time because you could do more. You have this moment that you need to seize where 70% of the public is on your side. You have wiggle room. So that way when the propaganda starts, even if you lose 10% when it comes to public support for Medicare for all, you still have the overwhelming majority. So it it really doesn't make sense to want to compromise. But here's what's happening. A lot of these politicians are starting to get cold feet. Sherrod Brown, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. Why? Because fighting for Medicare for all is something that you really have to be firmly committed to because it will be the most difficult political fight of your life. And they know that. Fighting for Medicare for all means that you don't just have to go up against health insurance companies and lobbyists and money in politics and Republicans, but you have to go against your own party and actually wage war against them and become public enemy number one, possibly for decades, because even Nancy Pelosi's top aide is already assuring health insurance executives that they have nothing to worry about when it comes to Medicare for all. So that's cue for you having to knuckle up and fight your own party. And in addition to the intra-party warfare that will inevitably be catalyzed in the event we start fighting for Medicare for All seriously, you'll also face non-stop attacks from media outlets. Now, knowing how hard you're going to have to fight for Medicare for All, and then after just listening to Elizabeth Warren give a milquetoast answer to healthcare reform for two minutes, Ask yourself this, do you really think Elizabeth Warren is someone who is willing to do what she has to do to get Medicare for All codified into law? You and I both know that the answer is no. So just because I like Elizabeth Warren and support her doesn't mean I'm going to handle her with kid gloves. When Kamala Harris started to backtrack on Medicare for All and started talking about this nonsense of, oh, there's multiple paths to Medicare for All. I called it like it was. And I'm going to be objective and hold Elizabeth Warren to the same standard. She's starting to walk back her support for Medicare for All. This is incredibly disappointing. Elizabeth Warren is the candidate that just continues to disappoint because even if she does the things that we like like you know this this wealth tax on assets and proposes this bill to allow Americans to manufacture generic drugs she still does these things that are just overwhelmingly disappointing to progressives stemming back to 2016 she just she doesn't have the political courage she's not a leader is she an ally Absolutely. And I have no doubt in my mind that in the event Bernie Sanders were to be elected president, she would back his effort for Medicare for all. But as a leader who has to take on the fight herself, is she the person who we can all instill our trust into that she's going to fight for Medicare for all 100%? No way. Not at all. And this is something that to me 
is unforgivable. You don't back Medicare for all. I don't support you. It's as simple as that. This is the ultimate litmus test. And these candidates right out of the gate are starting to fail that. And it's because we knew all along the only candidate who was serious about Medicare for all is Bernie Sanders and maybe Tulsi Gabbard and Andrew Yang. But everyone else, they're not going to be real fighters here. Sherrod Brown has always been widely viewed by progressives as one of the better senators in the Democratic Party. He's great on labor issues. He's usually in lockstep with Elizabeth Warren and even Bernie Sanders sometimes. So it's really weird that once Bernie Sanders announced his Medicare for All bill back in, I think it was September of 2017, he didn't co-sponsor it. You had more establishment-minded people like Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, all sign on to his bill. But Sherrod Brown, someone who we all widely expected would co-sponsor that bill, didn't. And now there's a very clear reason for that. It's because he doesn't support Medicare for All. And not only that, he has since moved to the right when it comes to Medicare for All, while the rest of the country shifts to the left and shifts towards the correct policy. So, as Nathaniel Wexel of The Hill reports, Senator Sherrod Brown took a shot at some of his fellow Democrats on Friday, saying that Medicare for All is not a practical idea. I know most of the Democratic Party candidates are all talking about Medicare for All. I think instead, we should do Medicare at 55, Brown said. Brown, who may run for president himself, spoke during a roundtable discussion with the Clear Lake Chamber of Commerce in Iowa. If someone has lost her job at age 58 or his plant closes at 60, he should be able to buy into Medicare early. It will cost a little bit more, but to me, that's about helping people now. It's something we might be able to get through Congress, Brown said. Medicare for All has been gaining traction among many progressive Democratic candidates like Senator Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Elizabeth Warren, and some on the left view support for such legislation as a litmus test. Brown is not historically opposed to Medicare for All as an aspiration, but he said he would rather focus on what's practical. I'm not going to come and make a lot of promises like President Trump did. I'm going to talk about what's practical and what we can make happen. And if that makes me different from the other candidates, so be it, he said. So reading this feels like a punch to the gut. It's so disappointing because this isn't something that I would have expected from Sherrod Brown. Not at all. Because think about this, someone who is widely viewed as a progressive is taking a stance that's less ambitious than someone like Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine supports a public option. Now, all of a sudden, Sherrod Brown just thinks you can buy into Medicare at 55. Now, when you consider the fact that the Affordable Care Act allows people to stay on their parents' health insurance plan until 26, well, that leaves people ages 27 to 54 shit out of luck if Sherrod Brown got his way. What about those people, Sherrod? Do they just get to die or go bankrupt if they have a medical emergency? That's your stance? Really? Wow. Now, this also is a lot more painful to see, you know, the fall of Sherrod Brown when you consider where he was before. So during the Affordable Care Act debate, you know, the Obamacare days when that policy was being written. Can you guess who one of the people who wrote up a public option for that bill was? It was Sherrod Brown. Now, we all know that the public option 
never even had a chance, but he was one of the people that supported a public option and drafted a public option into the Affordable Care Act. Now, doesn't even support a public option, presumably. And now he's staked out a position to the right of Tim Kaine. I just, I don't get it. Now, understand when he says practical, that it's not practical, well, presumably he's referring to the chances it has of passing. So he might personally feel as if this is the right policy, but when he says it's not practical, well, it's not practical because it can never pass. That's essentially what he's saying. In other words, even if he did support Medicare for All, he wouldn't want to fight for it because it would be too hard. And I look, I get it. It will be difficult. He saw firsthand how him writing in a public option didn't even get a debate. It was taken out of the Affordable Care Act. So I get how you would have that cynical view, but you're a lawmaker. You're in a position of power. You can write policy that would save lives. And what he's saying is, oh, you know, I think that we should just allow people to buy into Medicare at age 55 and then we wash our hands. Done. And understand that Sherrod Brown isn't the only Senate Democrat who is a disappointment on this issue because Elizabeth Warren, she was asked whether or not she would support the abolition of private insurance companies under a Medicare for All system. And she completely dodged the question. And when she spoke about healthcare, she kind of took the Kamala Harris approach and alluded to the fact that, oh, well, you know, we should have many paths to Medicare for All, essentially meaning we shouldn't have Medicare for All. Because when Democrats say we should have many paths towards Medicare for all, understand that that's a dodge. They're saying, you know what? I support Medicare for all. That's an aspirational goal. But for now, if getting a public option or just a couple of fixes to the Affordable Care Act will suffice, we should go with that. And then one day we'll do Medicare for all. But that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. There are so many crises going on in America. We're going to get distracted and move on to the next thing. So when you have political capital built up, and support among the public, 70% specifically, for this one policy, you'd be a buffoon to not go for Medicare for All. So this is why I don't support anyone but Bernie Sanders and probably Tulsi Gabbard on this issue, because when you are willing to not say Medicare for All in a nearly two-minute response to a question, you're not serious about Medicare for All. You don't support Medicare for All, I'm not going to support you. You will not have my support. This is a common-sense issue. Either you do or don't support people dying and going bankrupt every single year due to a lack of health insurance. The one party who's supposed to be on board with Medicare for All, who's supposed to be the party of the workers and the party of the people, well, they're not even willing to fight. They're already conceding before the fight begins. I mean, Jesus, what a hopeless opposition party, so-called opposition party we have. You know, you expect Republicans to fight us on Medicare for All, but when it comes to Democrats, they should at least be more open to hearing us out, be more receptive to what grassroots activists are saying. But nope, they give us the finger. As much as I can't stand Howard Schultz, one thing that I love about Howard Schultz is he's making claims about Medicare for All that's so bombastic, so disingenuous, that he's actually forcing CNN to do their job and take an adversarial position against Howard Schultz and speak out on behalf of of Medicare for all. Because when you say things that are so stupid, if they don't defend Medicare for all from his attacks, then they look disingenuous. So for example, he said that Medicare for all is un-American. 
a claim so stupid seeing that 70% of Americans supposedly support an un-American policy that you have to call him out for this. And that's exactly what happened. So in an interview with CNN, they asked him why he called Medicare for All un-American. And as you're going to see here, he moonwalked away from that position and he explained what he would do to improve America's shitty healthcare system. And you're going to learn that he knows nothing about policymaking. Nothing at all. And he certainly knows nothing about healthcare in spite of what he insists is one of his most important issues. Why do you think Medicare for All, in your words, is not American? It's, it's not that it's not American, it's unaffordable. So let me, let me be very clear. Because you called it Hel not American. Healthcare, healthcare has been central to my entire life. We've just talked about that. The first company in America to provide comprehensive health insurance to part-time people. I, I know a lot about this issue. It's deeply in my heart. Now, what I believe is that every American has the right to affordable health care as a statement. I also believe that the Affordable Care Act under President Obama was the right thing to do to provide over 30 million people who didn't, did not have insurance to get insurance. But now that we look back on it, the premiums have skyrocketed and we need to go back to the Affordable Care Act, refine it and fix it. In addition to that, in addition to that, we need corporations to have more skin in the game. We talked about that earlier. And we must have self-interest and the lobbying efforts of the pharmaceutical companies come to the table with a level of transparency to lower the cost of prescription drugs. So the price tag on it, uh, whether you look at the Urban Institute numbers or the Mercatus yeah. numbers, are $32 trillion for Medicare for All over a decade. But yeah. Senator Sanders says of his plan, yes, you pay more in taxes for it. The health care savings that Americans aren't spending to private insurers is $2 trillion. You say. Uh, it's, 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 this is not true. So, first of all, the fact that a CNN host explained correctly so how Americans would save more money under Medicare for All, because even if our taxes would go up, well, we would no longer have to pay our health insurance premiums, which would mean that we'd all net save money. The fact that a CNN employee explained that when this network went out of their way to obfuscate and take Bernie Sanders out of context when he tried to explain this very same thing. I mean, it's just it's heartwarming to see that. Because we have been trying to get the mainstream media to have a discussion about Medicare for All that's actually nuanced and thorough. But whenever they talk about Medicare for All, they frame it in this negative light because Americans, when you look at public opinion polls, they're against taxes. So they use that as ammunition to attack Medicare for All when they're not asking why are Americans against taxes. Well, first of all, they're against taxes if it means they're going to have less money. They're in favor of taxes on the wealthy. But they're also going to be in favor of things that would increase their purchasing power. So if you're going to raise their taxes, but make it so they no longer have to pay a monthly health insurance premium, they're going to support that. Hence why 70% of Americans now back Medicare for all. But I do have to take some credit away from that host because she said what a lot of people say when it comes to Medicare for all and got it wrong. She said it's going to cost 32 trillion over 10 years. Wrong. That's not like people need to understand if you're going to talk numbers with regard to Medicare for all, you've got to get it right. Our current healthcare system costs nearly 60 trillion dollars. 60 trillion dollars. 
all that that 32 trillion number represents is the change in federal spending to state and local spending. So for example, currently, when when they say, oh, it's going to cost $32 trillion over 10 years, what they're talking about, whenever you see that number, it just means that federal spending increases by $32 trillion. But as federal spending increases, state and local spending, private spending goes down. That's all that that means. $60 trillion is the cost of our current healthcare system. According to a conservative Mercatus Center study, if we move to Medicare for all, it costs the American people $57 trillion. So I do have to take credit away, but you know I can't give her too much shit for not being savvy enough to know that because nobody else seems to know that in mainstream media. Now getting to Howard Schultz, this is his plan. He says, quote, we need to go back to the Affordable Care Act, refine it, and fix it. And he adds, we need corporations to have more skin in the game, and we must have self-interest and the lobbying efforts of the pharmaceutical company come to the table with a level of transparency to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Oh, (laughs) it's so amazing. I don't even know if he heard what he's saying here. First of all, he says we need to refine it and fix it when it comes to the ACA. How? Well, he kind of alludes to the fact that, well, we need more corporations to have more skin in the game. We need the pharmaceutical companies to come to the table and sit down and all agree that, hey guys, We're going to be transparent. (laughs) Okay. He fundamentally misunderstands healthcare and policymaking with regard to healthcare. Because the reason why our healthcare system is dog shit is specifically because these for-profit health insurance and pharmaceutical companies are the ones that have all the say. If your goal, Howard, is health care, then you can't allow these for-profit companies with the fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value and make a profit off of us to come in because that's a conflict of interest. You have a choice between two mutually exclusive goals. Either one, you are on the side of Americans getting healthcare with healthcare being the main goal, the main thing you're trying to deliver with policy, or you're on the side of increasing the profits of these healthcare companies and health insurance companies. You have to pick one because they are diametrically opposed. And the fact that you don't know that shows that you have no idea when it comes to healthcare. You are so out of your league here that it is embarrassing that you'd continue to speak about this issue as if you know anything. Now, getting to the question as to, you know, what does he say to Bernie Sanders' claim that Americans would save $2 trillion overall over 10 years if we moved to Medicare for All system? He says, this is not true. What? It's not, it's not true? What do you mean? Now, part of the problem is that the host completely butchered that question because she framed it as, oh, well, Bernie Sanders claimed this. No, no, no. Bernie Sanders didn't just claim that willy-nilly. Bernie Sanders based that assertion off of a Koch-funded Mercatus Center study that said Americans would save $2 trillion over 10 years. Now, that's a more conservative study. Other studies say that Americans would save $5 trillion over 10 years. So if you say, oh, well, this is something that Bernie Sanders said, you give him wiggle room to say, this is not true. But if you say this is based on a conservative study, then he has to attack it in a more thorough and nuanced way. He has to attack it based on its methodology and whatnot. So she kind of messed it up when she worded it that way. But um, the fact that he just, oh, it's not true. 
Yes, it is true. Stick to coffee, because that seems to be the only thing that you are aware of. But when it comes to policymaking with regard to healthcare, you are clueless. The fact that you say corporations need to have more skin in the game, that tells me everything that I need to know about you. That you are fucking clueless, and you don't even understand the crux of the issue with modern American healthcare. It's that these corporations have too much influence. The fact that you don't know that shows how dumb you are, but I'm getting too angry for nothing because it's not like I have to convince you because according to a new poll, 4% of respondents who had an opinion on Schultz rated him as favorably compared with 40% who said they viewed him unfavorably. The poll noted that 42% of respondents said they viewed President Trump favorably while 52% said the opposite. In other words, he's less popular than Donald Trump and is overwhelmingly unfavorable. Everyone hates Howard. I rest my case. Over the last couple of years, really since 2016, progressives have had a lot of momentum when it comes to Medicare for All, and I think that we've been very explicit and forward with Democrats and anyone who wants to run in 2020 for president in letting them know that if they don't back Medicare for all, they're not going to make it past Iowa. We will not support them at all. And in the event they end up winning the nomination without backing Medicare for all, then good luck exciting the base. Because this is something that 70% of the American people support now. Nearly 9 out of 10 Democrats support it. So if you can't back that, then you are useless to us. And I feel as if we've been very successful at getting this message across until recently when a dipshit named Howard Schultz showed up and started talking about the impracticality of Medicare for All. And now all of a sudden we have other Democrats who are getting a little bit more bold and saying, you know, I kind of agree that Medicare for All is impractical. We had Sherrod Brown come out and say he doesn't support it because it's not practical. We have Amy Klobuchar running for president who isn't going to support it. And we have a number of other Democrats who have explicitly stated that they support Medicare for all, like Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Cory Booker, all say that, you know, maybe they're open to multiple paths, maybe they're open to a half measure. So they're all getting cold feet. But in an interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press on MSNBC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked to give her input here, and she basically said, everything we've all been screaming about for the past couple of years, and she said it in the most perfect way possible. Take a look. Are there specific red lines for you? Medicare for all, do you have to say you'll do it? Or is being aspiring to it in the future enough for you? So I think that we need, we need commitments with teeth. So I don't want to be placated as a progressive. And I know that the progressive movement does not want to be placated in 2020. It's like, but I guess, yeah, I yeah. guess, what's the definition? So you have, for instance, Amy Klobuchar and Sherrod Brown, I, I think, are both are arguing they love Medicare for all, but they're like, it's not realistic. Let's fix Obamacare or let's do Medicare yeah. 50, Medicare me, 55. Would that be a non-starter for you? For me, I, I reject that outright. I reject the rationale. Okay. I reject the rationale of saying adopting the same insurance models or a similar insurance model to any other developed country in America is unrealistic. I reject that. I reject the idea that single payer is, is impossible. I reject the idea that universal health care is impossible. All of these things are possible. When we talk about what I want in a 2020 candidate, I want a 2020 candidate that 
says we can do these things. We can be audacious. I think we need, in order to overcome this moment, we need to return to our FDR roots as a party. That's what I believe. And that right there is exactly why progressives love Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Because she, she just says it. She says what's on her mind. She says what we're all thinking. To suggest that Medicare for all, which is something that all the other modern industrialized countries have, is unrealistic? I reject that. And we all should reject that. Because when Sherrod Brown says, you know, I think that we should just opt for Medicare at 55, what he's saying is he doesn't have the courage to fight for something that would save lives. Medicare for 55, sure, that sounds, you know, fantastic. But what about people ages 27 to 54? Do they just die or go bankrupt if they don't have health insurance? So it's it's infuriating that they think that they're being the grown-ups by saying, you can't have this because it's not practical, liberals. Well, it'll never be practical if all Democrats were like you and lacked a spine, but in actuality, it is practical. If we live in a representative republic, then fucking shut up and represent us. 70% of Americans support Medicare for all. So do it. That's basically what it comes down to. And AOC is saying that. I reject that outright. And I'm glad that she's saying it because she has a lot of sway now in American politics. And they may not like what she has to say, but when she says something, it lands. Now, she also says, quote, when you talk about what I want in a 2020 candidate, I want a 2020 candidate that says we can do these things. We can be audacious in order to overcome this moment. We need to return to our FDR roots as a party. And that is exactly it. Because how do you expect to excite your own base if you are trying to pitch gradualism to them? Oh, I'm going to get an office and we'll do a couple of tweaks here and there to the system, but no fundamental reforms, no comprehensive reforms to healthcare or campaign finance, no ambitious climate change legislation. We'll just rejoin Paris and that's it. That's not going to resonate with people. We just tried taking the pragmatic approach in 2016. I don't have to tell you how that turned out. We have a reality show star as our president currently. So what AOC is saying here is so important because nobody says this. Nobody says this. She is one of the only people in Congress besides Bernie, but I think she's even more bold than Bernie in just saying what we're all thinking. We reject your pitch for these incrementalist solutions to problems that are really huge problems plaguing the American people. As my buddy Ron Placone says, that, you know, you can't propose an incrementalist solution to a catastrophic problem. I probably butchered his quote, but you all know what I'm talking about. It's a phenomenal quote. So I love what AOC is saying here, and I love that mainstream media is basically forced to pay attention to her because if they're forced to pay attention to her because she generates ratings, because she's popular, then guess who in turn will have to listen to her? The Democratic Party. And you can already see that they hate her, but um, good. Welcome their hatred, AOC, because you're doing the right thing and you have the American people behind you 100%. As many of you know by now, Cory Booker is running for president in 2020 to absolutely no one's surprise. And Cory Booker is someone who over the course of the last 20 to 24 months, 
he's been desperately trying to convince us that he's progressive. So he co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill and has seemingly moved to the left, at least when it comes to political rhetoric that he's using. And even if it screams political opportunism to me and he just comes off as a disingenuous politician, I'm not going to shit on someone too much if they're trying to be an ally to progressives. But when it comes to the question of is Cory Booker willing to lead when it comes to progressive policy issues and actually fight for Medicare for All? Well, like a lot of his peers in the 2020 Democratic Party primary, he's already inadvertently revealing his cards because he's made it clear recently that he isn't going to be that strong of an advocate for Medicare for All or really any progressive policies because at the press conference event that took place on the day he announced that he was running for president, a reporter asked him a very specific question about the filibuster and whether or not he would get rid of the filibuster in the event he were elected president. Now, before I tell you what Cory Booker's answer was, let me just remind you that a couple of weeks ago, Kirsten Gillibrand out of the gate pissed off progressives because on Pod Save America, she was asked this very same question. Would you consider getting rid of the filibuster for policies like Medicare for All? And she was extremely reluctant about getting rid of the filibuster. Now, if you want to get Medicare for All actually codified into law, then you have to agree to get rid of the filibuster. Why would you put up this arbitrary barrier for yourself that Republicans already removed for things that they want. They got rid of the filibuster to approve Supreme Court nominees like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. So why would you impose this arbitrary rule on yourself for something that actually would save lives, for something like Medicare for All? And that's why Kirsten Gillibrand pissed off a lot of progressives, because she made it clear that she's not willing to fight hard for progressive policies like Medicare for All. Now, after seeing that one of his peers just face-planted when asked this very question. Is he going to be introspective and try to give us an answer, at least sell us an answer that is something we want to hear? That, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the filibuster if it's for a policy like Medicare for All. Um, No, he was very clear that he is not going to get rid of the filibuster. He said no, just flat out. And what will you do about the filibuster so you can maybe move... Some of these issues that you want to the filibuster is a decision that's made in the Senate. My colleagues and I, uh, I've, everybody I've talked to believe uh, that the legislative filibuster should stay there. And I, I, I will personally uh, resist efforts to get rid of it. Okay, well, look, I mean, I respect you for just giving us an answer that is blunt. But understand that in the event Cory Booker were to be elected president, this means nothing would be done. Because he's not willing to fight fire with fire. Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees specifically to get what they want, but you're not willing to do the same thing and fight fire with fire even if it means you'd pass a policy that 70% of Americans want? Okay, well, thank you for making it clear. You're not serious about Medicare for All. Now, he wasn't asked specifically about Medicare for All here, right? But understand that this is an important question. Somebody who's serious about Medicare for All when they're asked a question about getting rid of the filibuster, they're going to say, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the filibuster because, you know, we're no longer playing in an even playing field if we keep that up for ourselves, but Republicans get rid of it for them. So 
what I want to do is get things done for the American people, and I want to pass progressive policies that the overwhelming majority of the American people support. We're going to get Medicare for all. We're going to legalize recreational marijuana. We're going to get a federal jobs guarantee. We're going to do a Green New Deal. And if that means getting rid of the filibuster because Republicans won't get on board for any of these policies, which they won't, then we're going to get rid of the filibuster. You're damn fucking right. We're going to get rid of the filibuster. But he didn't say that. So it's like, these Democrats, they don't realize that they are engaging in asymmetric warfare, where the rules that are imposed on them no longer exist for Republicans. But they're okay with that. People like Cory Booker, they're okay with that. And he's running on this really platitude-driven platform of, I believe in love and unity and whatnot, and he's not really doing a good job of reading the room right now because Americans are angry. We don't want to hear a message of love and unity and stronger together, as was proven with Hillary Clinton's failure. We want to hear how you are going to get in office and fight tooth and nail for the things that we believe in. But Cory Booker just admitted he's conceding before the fight begins because he's not going to be willing to get rid of the filibuster. Um, well, okay, then you have to also acknowledge that we see this as you not being serious about policies like Medicare for All or really anything. Because if you think you're going to build a consensus in the Senate with Republicans, even just a couple, I just, I can't see how that's going to be the case. You might be able to get Republicans on board for policies that fuck over the middle class, like any trade policies like the TPP or any foreign policy, you know, regime change type of policy positions. But when it comes to Medicare for all, you're just, you have to accept you're not going to get Republicans. You're not going to get Republicans for anything that's even remotely progressive. So by... Not getting rid of the filibuster, you're just putting up a barrier that doesn't need to exist. All right. Well, I'm glad that we know where you stand. Um, but no, <laughs> it's going to be a no for me because, yeah, you're not serious about policies like Medicare for all. When it comes to Cory Booker and his record, there are any number of things that we can talk about that will demonstrate just how atrocious his record is. We can talk about his close ties to Wall Street. We can talk about how he was one of 13 senators that voted to stop us from importing cheaper prescription drugs from Canada. He actually did that, and then once he got backlash, he flipped and then pretended it was as if Canada doesn't have stronger regulatory standards than us. Completely disingenuous. So, I mean, we could talk about that. We can also talk about how back in 2012, when President Obama was running against Mitt Romney and he was a surrogate for Obama, Cory Booker actually attacked Obama because he thought Obama was being too harsh on private equity firms. On a very personal level, uh, I'm not about to sit here and indict uh, private equity. It's To me, it's just this, we're getting to a ridiculous point in America, especially that I know I live in a state where pension funds, unions, and other people are investing in companies like Bain Capital. If you look at the totality of Bain Capital's record, uh, it ain't, it, it, they've done a lot to support uh, uh, businesses, to grow businesses, and this to me, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable. You know, this kind of stuff is nauseating to me on both sides. It's nauseating to the American public. Enough is enough. Stop attacking private equity. Stop attacking Jeremiah Wright. This stuff has got to stop because what it does is it undermines to me what this country should be focused on. It's a distraction from the real issues. It's either going to be a small campaign about this crap or it's going to be a big campaign, in my opinion, about the issues that American public cares about. Now, of course, since he attacked Obama, what did the GOP do? Well, they then included Cory Booker's attack on Obama 
in a pro-Romney television ad. Basically saying, this surrogate of Barack Obama decided to attack Obama himself. And that was all because Cory Booker wanted to defend private equity firms. He thought Obama's criticism was nauseating to him. So we can talk about that. We can also talk about how Cory Booker just wouldn't be that effective in a battle against Donald Trump head-to-head because the last time Donald Trump attacked Cory Booker, Cory Booker responded not by firing back, but by instead blowing smoke up Donald Trump's ass. I don't want to answer his hate with hate. I'm going to answer it with love. I'm not going to answer his darkness with darkness. I love him. I know his kids. I know his family. They're good. The the children especially, good people. And this is the problem he has, is that he wants to, first of all, I feel lucky because he was attacking everybody else in the Senate from John McCain to Elizabeth Warren. I was feeling left out. Now he's finally got them. Thank you, Donald. I finally feel like I'm important enough that you will attack it. When you read that and he says, well, what else can that mean? I know Cory Booker better than he knows himself. What is that supposed to mean to you? He wants us to be speculating. Ooh, it sounds so sinister in this it does i don't care i love you donald now for all the times that cory booker lies and is disingenuous and is a political opportunist i actually believe him there when he says that he loves donald trump because he actually is friends with the trump family he attended ivanka trump and jared kushner's wedding kushner was a supporter of booker while he was the mayor of newark new jersey kushner also hosted a fundraiser for booker's senate campaign so again there are so many things we can talk about when it comes to cory booker but i'm not gonna go through and give you this comprehensive breakdown of cory booker's record because i think that there's one aspect about his record that really needs more attention than any other aspect because it sheds light on who Cory Booker is and who he chooses to align himself with and how that is devastating to the poor communities he claims to want to support. So one of the most harmful aspects about Cory Booker's past, to be blunt, as Eric Blank of Jacobin puts it, Well, Cory Booker hates public schools. There are many good reasons to oppose Cory Booker's bid for the presidency. One of the main ones is his long-standing drive to destroy public education. So, Blank goes on to explain, For close to two decades, Cory Booker has been at the forefront of a nationwide push to dismantle public education. According to Booker, the education system is the main cause of our society's fundamental problems rather than, say, inequality and unchecked corporate power. As he explained in a 2011 speech, disparities in income in America are not because of some greedy capitalist. No, it's because of a failing education system. Public schools, Booker continued, are also responsible for mass incarceration and racial injustice. To combat such evils, Booker has openly praised Republican leader Betsy DeVos's organization, American Federation for Children, for fighting to win the battle of the civil rights movement, scapegoating underfunded public schools for deeply rooted racial and economic problems makes little sense, but it's been a ticket to the top for Cory Booker. In fact, it was by hitching his star to the corporate-backed education reform movement that Booker first rose to prominence. The son of wealthy parents who were among IBM's first black executives, Booker's big political break came in September of 2000 when he was tapped to give a keynote speech to the arch-conservative Manhattan Institute, calling the Newark school system repugnant. Booker claimed there was great 
concrete evidence that large groups of children cannot succeed in the public school system. Yet, rather than improving this system by increasing school funding or building public community schools, Booker made a hard case for charter schools as well as school vouchers, i.e. state funding for parents to pay for private schools. To give this pitch a social justice veneer, he quoted Frederick Douglass, Quote, power concedes nothing without force, and steeped his arguments in the language of racial justice. Now, I'm not doubting that Cory Booker cares about social and racial justice. I think he probably cares deeply about these issues. However, to exploit racial justice causes to push for an insidious and, quite frankly, nefarious pro-charter school agenda, that, to me, is something that is morally indefensible. Now, however you want to repackage that, it doesn't matter, because his actions speak for themselves. Now, as Blank continues, one of Booker's main financial backers, Whitney Tilson, was honest about the profit motivations for large head fund investors like himself. Charter schools, he explained to the New York Times, are the ideal philanthropic opportunity for such business leaders because hedge funds are always looking for ways to turn a small amount of capital into a large amount of capital. While the over $3 million in campaign contributions Booker received from his school reform sponsors was not quite enough to buy him the 2002 election, Booker's 2006 mayoral bid was victorious. Due in large part to his zealous commitment to privatization, Newark has gone from having less than 10 percent of students in charters in 2008 to over 33 percent today by 2022 44 percent of the city's students are set to be schooled in these publicly financed but privately run institutions to quote make newark the charter school capital of the nation booker in 2010 reached out to republican governor chris christie and billionaire facebook founder mark zuckerberg christie agreed to cede booker an exceptional degree of mayoral control over education zuckerberg then gave Booker a whopping $100 million for the project. In Booker's view, the plan would have to be pushed from the top down, since the process could be influenced by forces like teachers' unions, for whom the extension of charter schools represent a mortal threat. Quote, Real change has casualties, and those who prospered under the pre-existing order will fight loudly and viciously, explained Booker in his memo to the governor. Despite long-standing myths about the private sector's efficiency, much of Zuckerberg's money was squandered in thousand-dollar-a-day consultants and other ill-thought-out initiatives. And despite this massive private sector cash inflow, Booker's reforms have done nothing to actually improve public education in Newark schools, even if one judges school quality through the dubious criteria of test scores. But these reforms did succeed in rolling back teacher union power, shrinking the public sector, and undercutting democratic control over education. Now, to basically put things simply, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who basically bought her position in Trump's administration, has spent tons of her money, millions of dollars, and her family pushing for the privatization of education. Now, how do you promote privatized schooling? Well, first, you have to make the case for it by arguing that public schools, they just aren't sufficient in today's day and age. The standards are much lower. So because they're so bad, well, you know, you should enroll your child in a private charter school. But how do they influence you to enroll your children in a charter school that you may not be able to afford? Well, they 
lead this cause to destroy public education. And Cory Booker was one of the allies of the DeVos family trying to accomplish this. And this is true when you look at his record as the mayor of Newark, because he wasn't just vehemently pro-charter schools, because that's one thing. But the problem with being pro-charter school is you almost always are simultaneously going to be anti-public school. And as the mayor of Newark, Cory Booker was vehemently anti-public school. So one of the main objectives he had was to close down public schools that were underperforming. Now, if you care about the quality of education, you might want to first assess why these schools are underperforming. Maybe it's the case that they lack resources. Maybe they're short on staff. Maybe the state isn't doing enough to assist these schools. But he simply just wanted to close them down because less public schools means that parents will have less options and will thus be more inclined to enroll their children in charter schools. And Cory Booker wasn't interested at all in gauging whether or not these schools' inability to thrive hinged on a lack of funding. Instead, he just wanted to close them down, saying, quote, I don't think pouring new wine into old skins is the way. We need to close them and start new ones. Now, another initiative that Cory Booker pushed forward during his tenure as the mayor of Newark was he tried to push for this initiative that would tie teachers' pay to their performance, and their performance was evaluated by individuals who weren't actually educators themselves. Now, if you know anything about education, then this would be devastating to teachers, because if you're going to gauge a teacher's performance specifically on test scores, you're just going to hurt teachers and, in turn, hurt students. But in fact, Cory Booker, in his bid to privatize education, he became so brazen that individuals like Ross Baraka, who was a principal in one of the high schools in Newark, he actually sounded the alarm about Cory Booker because it was very clear that Cory Booker was trying to not just push for private schools, but he was just outright trying to dismantle public education. And because Cory Booker was so effective at dismantling public education in Newark, New Jersey, well, hedge fund backers decided to reward him and they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to get him elected to the Senate. But since he knows now that this type of behavior isn't going to land well with the Democratic Party's base in 2020, Blank explains, Booker's response has been to tone down his proselytizing for privatization and to reverse his long-standing support for Betsy DeVos, with whom he had served on the Alliance for School Choice Board between 2004 and 2008. But there's little evidence that his fundamental political commitments have changed. Though Booker voted against DeVos's appointment as Secretary of Education, he was quick to explain on CNN that his stance on school reform hadn't changed one iota. So that is disqualifying to me because if Cory Booker does to the aggregate country on a national level what he did in Newark, New Jersey, with how ferocious he was and attacking public education, that would be devastating. I can't even fathom how horrible that will be. Now, he may tell you he's not going to push for that, but I mean, I'll let you decide. His record, I think, speaks for itself. Now, I need you to understand something. Whenever you hear the word school choice, that is a misnomer because the individuals who are pushing for charter schools who are talking about, quote, school choice, well, they're actually not really about school choice. They're trying to frame this as a debate about school choice and broadening choice, but in actuality, they want to limit choices because what they're trying to do is destroy public schools. They're lobbying to have these schools have less resources 
to destroy public education. Also, that way you'll feel more inclined to enroll your children in their charter schools. So this nonsense about school choice, whenever you hear someone talking about that, I need your bullshit detector to go off because they are full of shit and they're trying to gaslight you. But I mean, Cory Booker, his career, a lot of it is characterized by his willingness to push vociferously for charter schools, much to the detriment of private schools or public schools, excuse me. So public education is incredibly important. And what we need to do is empower teachers. We need to push for more funding in public education. But when you have someone like Cory Booker running for president, I'm sure teachers are terrified. Now, during his press conference, he actually was asked about this. And he said, look, I unequivocally support the teachers in Los Angeles as they strike. Well, first and foremost, our teachers are, are ridiculously underpaid in America. Uh, if you just want to look at this in an economic analysis, they are the profession that contributes the most to a thriving American economy. And we cannot continue to devalue what is one of the greatest professions in our country, which is public school teachers. Hermana! It may sound wonderful, but on paper, functionally speaking, Cory Booker is a Republican when it comes to public education. Because you don't get to just go through your whole career trying to destroy public education at the behest of these for-profit charter schools and then just pretend as if you never did that. Pretend as if your agenda didn't lead to nearly half of Newark schools being charter schools. That's something that can't just be swept under the rug. But my guess is he's going to try to pretend as if none of that happened, but it's not going to go away. Now, one thing that the author of this article makes clear is that we should all actually be thankful about Cory Booker's presence here, because at least at a minimum, he's going to start this conversation about just how harmful charter schools are to public education. And that's something that the Democratic Party needs to address because Cory Booker has been trying to push the party to be more friendly towards charter schools. And there's enough corporate Democrats to where I'm sure he's been relatively successful. But as president, you have to answer for all of these things you did to destroy public education in your city when you were the mayor. Closing down public schools that were underperforming, that is something that is terrifying to think of what he can do on a national level in terms of damage so if you need to know anything about cory booker this is what you need to know about cory booker that he is anti-public education and he may not say that he may not admit this explicitly but functionally speaking throughout his career he has done things that harm public education Michael Moore recently appeared on MSNBC and he was talking about the current crop of 2020 Democratic Party presidential candidates and he was saying something that was not only informative but it was really important for people who typically tune into MSNBC to hear because if you watch MSNBC or CNN and really any mainstream media news outlet your worldview is going to be shaped based on what they say you're going to have a skewed perception of political reality. So what he says here is really important and informative. Essentially, he says, you know, the bar for who should be the Democratic Party's nominee shouldn't just be who can defeat Donald Trump. It's got to be someone who actually talks about the issues. So he goes on to explain why this goal of appealing to moderates 
it's no longer a feasible political strategy because this just doesn't match up with the reality of where the American people are at. Now, on top of the point that he makes with regard to that issue, he also talks about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and he kind of makes a pitch as to why she should run for president one day. So take a look. It's, it's too bad that you have to be 35 to be president. You know, that we put that in the Constitution, the Founding Fathers, because people died at 38 or 40 mm -hmm. back then. You know, we need to lower that. If that was lowered to 30... You, all right, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is that where you're going with this? Could be running. Could be running. She just has to be 30 by the time... Mm -hmm. By the time of January of 2021. Uh, so, so she's, look, everybody can out progressive each other on their platforms. You're saying that she's got fire she in the belly to, the, to get She is the going. leader. She is the leader. Everybody knows it. Everybody feels it. She's the leader of this, of this mass movement that is not, I'm not talking about a movement in terms of an organization. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a Fox, Fox News poll this week mm -hmm. that where it said 70% of the American public agree with her mm -hmm. on having the top marginal rate for the rich, their taxes, 70% mm -hmm. rate on the rich. And that's a Fox News poll right. saying that over two-thirds of the country. Now, now, there are a lot of Americans who think that's her. crazy, but they also don't remember that we had uh, marginal tax rates above 90%. Yes. that well, At a time when the economy was actually doing I grew up in that America. time, yeah. and, and, and that's when all the libraries... Yeah, I'm not were, advocating for it. I'm just saying no, it's The not libraries the were open. There weren't potholes. Schools were great. Yeah. Uh, Fox so, likes talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. I think they talk about her more than, than anybody else does. Uh, they're, the, the, the right is enjoying having her as the image of what Democrats are. Is there a danger if uh, someone that progressive runs that it, 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 it does turn off moderates, or do you think that's not a danger worth wor worrying about? I'm not, no. First of all, if you're moderate, stop being moderate. Take a position, all right? There's no middle ground anymore. There's no halfway point to should somebody be paid a living wage. Well, I'm a moderate, so I think they could be paid half of a living wage. You know, if, if, on the issue of choice, uh, there's no halfway there. You're, you're either for it or you're against it. Uh, you know, do you believe in equal rights for women? Do you believe that we should have an equal rights amendment? Yes or no? There's no middle ground. This right. is no time right. so for moderation. Where there is middle ground possibly is health care and taxes. Right. Why, how where? much you tax the rich? Oh, how much? The, Seventy percent oh, of the or, people or, said tax the rich. Or or seventy percent. Oh, the, the or polls. what kind of health care? Right. There are many what different kind? ways of in, of insuring everybody. Really? We, we both agree. Well, you mean you know I like my system from Canada. It's one of several systems that most of the developed world use. I guess yes. my point is that all of the developed all of the developed don't world. Don't say most. For, well, don't a lot of be moderate and pull your punch here. Right. All of the developed world. Except has, for America. Except for this country. And, it, and it's shameful. And it, we right. look weird, yeah. too. You can't explain it to a person no. from another country. No, it's not a progressive policy anywhere else in the world. It's just the policy, right? It's just the policy. Conservatives it. in Canada yes. would never think of removing right. their Canadian health care. The Tories in Britain, all behind it. Right. So I found that discussion fascinating. But I will say this. I don't necessarily agree with everything that Michael Morris said specifically when it comes to AOC, and she actually addressed the prospect of her running for president one day, and she was very clear. She says, how about no? Sometimes political media is too fixated on personalities instead of policies. The whole country just went through an exhausting midterm election. We need a break. Can we instead talk about healthcare, living wage, legalizing cannabis, GND, and other issues? And 
you know, as much as I love AOC and as much as I'd love to see a president Ocasio-Cortez one day, I think that what she's saying really is important here because we need to get it through our heads as Americans that politics just doesn't just consist of who are we going to elect next? Because we're seeing, you know, these signs at different protests. Oh, well, if Hillary won, I'd just be out to brunch. No, that's the wrong mentality. You can't just elect someone and then wait another four years to get activated again. Politics is the ongoing process of struggle. The fight doesn't stop after we have an election. And if you lose an election, you just mobilize to win the next election. That's not what politics is about. Politics is about building coalitions. Politics is about organizing. It's not just about electing people. So I do think that this fixation on personalities, even if it's on progressives, it does kind of get us a little bit, um, just, it, it leads us astray overall. So I do agree with AOC there. Again, I think that she, if she wants to one day run for president, I would unequivocally support her and would be supportive. But I do think that what she says here is important. But with that being said, everything else that Michael Moore says is really important. So the question really was framed as, can someone that progressive, as progressive as AOC, actually be president because theoretically she'd turn off moderates? Now, the reason why someone like Ali Belshi might instinctively feel this way is because he lives in that DC elitist bubble. They have this skewed perception of reality where there's, you know, you have the progressive left, the quote far left, you have Donald Trump, the far right, and then in the middle, you have a lot of these centrists who are socially liberal, but fairly economically conservative. They may support, you know, raising the minimum wage, but when it comes to really comprehensive economic reform that would attack wealth inequality, they're not in favor of it. So if you just tune into MSNBC, CNN, you'd get the perception that that's what it's like. You know, there's that three classes of American citizens. But in actuality, this is what Michael says to that. If you're moderate, stop being moderate. There's no middle ground. There's no halfway point to should somebody be paid a living wage. There's no middle ground. This is no time for moderation. Now, the reason why he's correct is not just because now is not the time for moderation, but because one, you know, now is not the time for moderation because progressive policy positions, things that you and I support, those are technically the moderate positions. Medicare for all has 70% of support among the electorate, including a majority of Republicans. Other issues like a federal jobs guarantee, legalizing marijuana, a Green New Deal, these are all overwhelmingly popular policy positions. And because they're so popular, as a result, these are moderate positions. If the average American supports progressive policy ideas, then that's the moderate position. So when people refer to Bernie Sanders as a far leftist, for example, well, that's not true because if he was a far leftist, he wouldn't have this broad coalition of support. He wouldn't be the most popular politician in the country because a lot of people, they don't characterize themselves as on the far left. I don't even characterize myself as being on the far left, but that's the perception because mainstream media paints this false view of reality where most people are centrist. Most people don't agree with Bernie Sanders. And look, if you tune into mainstream news, you're going to feel as if there's this widespread centrist consensus, but that's just not the political reality that we're living in. Another reason why Michael Moore is correct, 
when he says that now is not the time for moderates is because if you're a Democrat and you try to go after these mythical moderates, you are going to lose. Hillary Clinton tried this. Claire McCaskill tried this. Joe Donnelly tried this. Heidi Heitkamp tried this time and again, and it hasn't worked. This strategy is now unfeasible because you can't run as a centrist or a moderate at a time when Americans are polarized. You're either firmly in the camp of conservatism or you're on the left. So if you keep trying to go after this voting bloc that no longer exists, that hasn't existed for a while, then you're going to lose elections. And finally, when Democrats started to shift back to the left, when more than half of House Democratic candidates were supporting Medicare for all, what happened? They finally won. We had a blue wave. It's because when you run to the left, you're actually activating a block of voters that exists. That's you appealing to moderates. If we judge someone who's moderate based on where the average American is. Now, Michael Moore says a little bit more about this. And even if he pretty much says what I just told you, he does make another point that's important. I don't think Americans right now actually really identify themselves in the old school way of I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. You know, I don't think that's what's going on. I think that people have had it. I think that they realized that they're sick and tired of living from paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And this has to end. And they know that their kids are never going to pay off those. And if we didn't see it, we saw it in the shutdown where you saw government employees, the ones that a whole bunch of Republicans spent years telling me are overpaid who couldn't make it to their yeah, second Another lie. So that was a really important point because I think that what Michael is alluding to here is that, you know, centrism isn't something that's going to work or be exciting to anyone unless they are comfortable. It's why so many of these Hollywood elites love centrist candidates. They love Hillary Clinton, right? Because they're doing fine. In their personal lives, they're living in their mansions. They're judging the peasants from their ivory towers, and they don't have to face what average paycheck-to-paycheck living Americans face. But what Michael Moore is getting at here is that at a time when people are desperate and they're struggling, they don't want a centrist. They don't want incrementalism. They don't want a gradualist policymaker. They're getting desperate, and as a result, what does desperation breed? It breeds radicalism people will feel automatically just more inclined to go for the more radical candidate, which means they're going to either gravitate towards a right-wing demagogue like Donald Trump, or they'll opt for the left-wing populist like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Because again, centrism is only appealing to people who are comfortable. So even if it's the case that if you tune in to CNN and you get these anti-Trump Republicans and Hollywood elites on there talking about how we need someone who's moderate, Even if that may give us a skewed perception of political reality, the point is that that's not the norm. They're not a representative sample of average American citizens. Average American citizens are on the progressive left just when you look at it from a sheer policy standpoint. So if you try to go after moderates who don't exist at a time when people are polarized and they're either on the far right or the progressive left, then you're just, you're not politically astute and you don't know anything about strategy and you shouldn't be giving your opinion on mainstream media. But yet, we see MSNBC hiring Claire McCaskill who constantly pushes this idea that Democrats have got to appeal to Republicans. It's 
harmful and it's going to lead to losses so unless people start listening more to michael moore and less to the claire mccaskills of the world and the joe donnelly's of the world and the jeff flakes of the world and the anna navarro's of the world then we will be in a bad place politically where another right-wing demagogue like donald trump could spring up and captivate an audience so long as he speaks in relatively populist terms and that's something that's harmful so unless we learn the reality of americans in 2019 then as a country we're just not going to be able to move forward and it'd be nice if mainstream media helped with that narrative brought on more political scientists or people that kind of have their thumb on the pulse of you know america like michael moore at least he, he you know i i don't agree with everything he says all the times but on this issue he's correct and he knows more about the average political voter than the vast majority of people who appear on mainstream news so you know it's it's why a lot of people have to tune into independent news shows like this one because we actually are normal people and we don't bring on elites on this channel we actually talk about what normal americans are feeling and what they're going through I want to play a clip for you of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I really don't have much commentary to add because I think that this clip alone speaks for itself. And basically, to give you the setup, she concisely demonstrates just how fundamentally broken the American political system is. Take a look. It's already super legal, as we've seen, for me to be a pretty bad guy. So it's even easier for the president of the United States to be one, I would assume. That's right. Thank you very much. Let's play a lightning round game. I'm going to be the bad guy, which I'm sure half the room would agree with anyway. And, um, and I want to get away with as much bad things as possible, ideally to enrich myself and advance my interest, even if that means putting, uh, putting my interests ahead of the American people. I have enlisted all of you as my co-conspirators, so you're going to help me legally get away with all of this. So, Mrs. Hobart Flynn, I want to run. If I want to run a campaign that is entirely funded by corporate political action committees, is, that, is there anything that legally prevents me from doing that? No. Okay. So there's nothing stopping me from being entirely funded by corporate PACs, say, from the fossil fuel industry, the healthcare industry, big pharma. I'm entirely 100% lobbyist PAC uh, funded. Okay. So let's say I'm a really, really bad guy. And let's say I have some skeletons in my closet that I need to cover up so that I can get elected. Um, Mr. Smith, is it true that you wrote this article, this opinion piece for the Washington Post entitled, these payments to women were unseemly, that doesn't mean they were illegal? Well, I can't see the piece, but I wrote a piece under that headline in the Post, so I assume that's right. Okay, great. So, green light for hush money. I can do all sorts of terrible things. It's totally legal right now for me to pay people off. And that is considered speech. That money is considered speech. So I use my special interest dark money funded campaign to pay off folks that I need to pay off and get elected. So now I'm elected, now I'm in. I've got the power to draft, lobby, and shape the laws that govern the United States of America. Fabulous. Now, is there any hard limit that I have? Perhaps, uh, Mrs. Hobart Flynn, is there any hard limit that I have in terms of what legislation I'm allowed to touch? Are there any limits on the laws that I can write or influence 
especially if I'm uh, based on the uh, special interest funds that I accepted to finance my campaign and get me elected in the first place. There's no limit. So there's none. So I can be totally funded by oil and gas. I can be totally funded by big pharma. Come in, write big pharma laws, and there's no limits to that whatsoever. That's right. Okay. So, awesome. Now, uh, now, Mr. Marabani, the last thing I want to do is get rich with as little work possible. That's really what I'm trying to do as the bad guy, right? So is there anything preventing me from holding stocks, say, in an oil or gas company, and then writing laws to deregulate that, that industry and cause, you know, that could potentially cause the stock value to soar and accrue a lot of money in that time? You could do that. So I could do that. I could do that now with the way our current laws are, are set up. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Is it possible that any elements of this story apply to our current government and our current public servants right now? Yes. Yes. So we have a system that is fundamentally broken. We have these influences existing in this body, which means that these influences are here in this committee shaping the questions that are being asked of you all right now. Would you say that that's correct, yes. Mr. Marabani or Mr. Shaw? Yes. All right. So, one last thing, uh, Mr. Schaub. In relation to congressional oversight that we have, the limits that are placed on me as a congresswoman, compared to the executive branch and compared to, say, the President of the United States, would you say that Congress has the same sort of standard of accountability? Are there, is there more teeth in that regulation in Congress on the president, or would you say it's about even, or more so on the federal? Um, in terms of laws that apply to the president, mm -hmm. yeah, there's just almost no laws at all that apply to the president. So I'm being held, and every person in this body is being held to a higher ethical standard than the president of the United States. That's right, because there are some committee uh, ethics committee rules that apply to you. And it's already super legal, as we've seen, for me to be a pretty bad guy. So it's even easier for the President of the United States to be one, I would assume. That's right. Thank you very much. That was absolutely fantastic. I think that what she's doing here in shedding light on this issue, it's important because how many people actually know that the system is this fundamentally broken? I doubt that that many people know the specifics. I mean, people generally have this vague idea, according to public opinion polls, that money is an issue in American politics. There's too much money. Millionaires and billionaires have too much influence, and we need to do what we can to curtail that influence. But I don't think people know just how nauseating the system is when you look at it. It seems as if nobody in Washington, D.C., is concerned about addressing this issue because they all are going to benefit from it because when they leave Congress, they're going to be a lobbyist. We've seen this time and again. We have John Boehner, who went on to become a lobbyist for the legal pot industry. And then we have Minion Clyburn, who was just part of the FCC, gave a phenomenal speech in support of net neutrality, now becoming a lobbyist for T-Mobile. So you have this revolving door where the people are now working for the industries that they oversaw. So there's two questions that I want to address. First of all is why is it this way? Why is there so much money in politics? 
Well, the first reason why that's the case is because of Supreme Court decisions dating back to Buckley v. Vallejo and leading up to Citizens United in 2010 and then McCutcheon in 2014. We allowed for unlimited sums of money to get into politics so that way these large multinational corporations can essentially buy off the politicians, get them elected, and then have them do their bidding. Now, when you look at these local elections, these house races, nine times out of ten, studies show that the candidate with the most money is the one who has the best chance at getting elected. Hence why, when we put up so many grassroots progressives against establishment Democrats, not only did they lose because of a lack of name recognition, but they lost because... Most people just aren't as engaged as you and I in politics, so they will go with who they see on television, and whoever can run the most ads is usually the one who's going to get elected, i.e. the person with the most money. So that is why this is happening. That was kind of the start. Money in politics has always been an issue in America, but really the floodgates were opened in 2010 with Citizens United. Now another question is, how can a political system, in spite of Citizens United, become this corrupted. How are there not fail-safes that stop this from happening? Well, look, even if there are fail-safes, we live in a capitalist system. And what capitalism does is like a virus, it infects all aspects of the country. And it starts eating away at democracy slowly but surely to where democracy is literally no longer existing in this country. We live in an oligarchy. When you look at policy outcomes and you weigh out who supports which policy outcomes, well, American citizens, just normal people, they have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. Special interests, elites, they have an actual influence on policy outcomes. So what capitalism has done is it's, pa it's paved the way for decisions like Citizens United which has then corrupted our entire system. So, capitalism and democracy, they just can't exist simultaneously. They're fundamentally incompatible. We saw this firsthand, how capitalism, moneyed interests, like a virus, spread, and they actually are eating away at democracy before our very eyes now. Things we care about, like ending the wars, well, we don't have a say because the military-industrial complex has profits to be made, and their puppets in Congress aren't going to interfere with that. Net neutrality? What, 80 to 90% of the American public didn't want net neutrality repealed? But because there are puppets in the FCC, a former employee of Verizon, their legal counsel, well, we didn't get what we wanted there. So, what AOC, getting back to the original point of this video, was her concise explanation of just how fundamentally broken the system is, she is shedding light on something that people don't know about. They're just not well-versed in this. And it's really important to have people in Congress who are allies who are willing to speak on this, because there really hasn't been many people, besides Bernie Sanders, who are willing to talk about this because they're all bought off. They all have a vested interest to shut up. To keep quiet about this, but AOC doesn't take corporate money. She's funded by the grassroots, and you can see how that affects her because she is exclusively governing in a way that represents the people. So the system is broken, and we need fundamental reform and gradualism of any kind. Just simply, it won't stop or undo, really, what's been done to our system, what capitalism has done to our system and our democratic institutions and democratic processes. So what AOC is doing here 
is just incredibly important. And I really hope that she continues to raise awareness about this issue because people need to know about corruption and just how prevalent it is in America. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey just released a draft of their Green New Deal legislation, and I haven't actually read the draft itself, but I have read numerous analyses about the draft, and thus far it seems as if, based on my you know initial impressions, that it is everything we hoped it would be, and more. Because it doesn't just still aim for the goal of moving to 100% clean renewable energy within 10 years, but it also really has this strong emphasis on justice. So that way the people who are currently in dirty jobs who are producing greenhouse gas emissions, they're not going to somehow go deep into poverty. There's going to be this just transition to a clean job for them. There's going to be a safety net for them. And also this bill is aiming to make sure that the communities that are the most vulnerable due to climate change are going to have more protection and I'm, I'm just really excited about it so I'm going to play a clip from the press conference of her and Ed Marquis introducing this bill and then we're going to go over some of the details and then I'll tell you what the response to it was from Democratic Party leadership. Today is also the day that we choose to assert ourselves as a global leader in transitioning to 100% renewable energy and charting that path. That means that we are not going to peg ourselves by the, lowest, uh, by, by the lowest standards of other nations. It doesn't mean that we're going to say, what about them? They're not doing it. What about them? They're not doing it. Why should we? We should do it because we should lead. We should do it because that is what this nation is about. We should do it because we are a country founded on ideals of a culture that is innovative, that, that cares for our brothers and sisters across this country. We should do it because we are an example to the world. So I love this. I like that she's making it her signature issue. We have her pushing for a Green New Deal and Bernie Sanders pushing for Medicare for All along with other issues. And this is phenomenal. We need someone basically to be a leader on this issue and nobody has stepped up until now. And who better than someone who's a millennial who is actually worried like me about how our lives will be when we are old, when we are Nancy Pelosi's age, we're going to be retiring into an apocalypse, basically. So we need someone who actually cares because it will personally affect them. So I think AOC is the best spokesperson for the Green New Deal. Now, getting to the details, we're not going to go too in-depth here, but just for the most part, this is a framework for the Green New Deal. It's not actually a bill just yet, but thus far, it aims for 100% renewable energy, as you all know, and a, quote, fair and just transition for workers currently employed in dirty jobs. It also commits to more public investments into infrastructure and clean industries. It aims to make existing buildings more energy efficient and additionally it emphasizes the need to mitigate harm that climate change will inevitably do to vulnerable communities and sets out a standard of universal access to clean water overall it's just it's phenomenal now what you need to know is that this isn't just one proposal in and of itself the green new deal is basically the amalgamation of numerous policy priorities so I think that this is something that is is bold, it's ambitious, and you're going to hear people say that, how can we pay for this? How realistic is this? In fact, Howard Schultz is already taking a dump on it. I respect the uh, new people who are coming into Congress. They got great ideas. I would just ask the question, how many of uh, these ideas are realistic and how many of these ideas can we actually pay for? 
<clears throat> and regardless of what people who are older, who won't have to deal with climate change say, this is something that's important. It's, uh, you know, it's equitable and it's exactly what we need. And I think this is going to be another litmus test that 2020 Democrats are going to have to pass. Now, what would really help to push the Green New Deal along is if Democratic Party leadership actually helps AOC here. If Nancy Pelosi in the House helps push for this and whips up support for it. If Chuck Schumer does this in the Senate for Ed Markey's companion peace bill. But the problem is that the reception to the Green New Deal from at least Nancy Pelosi, we don't know what Chuck Schumer says at the time I'm recording this video, but what Nancy Pelosi says about this is basically really condescending. It's dismissive. And what she said made me irate. So here's how Nancy Pelosi responded to a Green New Deal when asked about it in an interview with Politico. Quote, it will be one of several or maybe many suggestions that we receive. The Green Dream or whatever they call it. Nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? So that is probably the most condescending thing I've ever heard Nancy Pelosi say. And it's not too surprising because as she puts it, she is nothing more than... They call me a corporate pawn. That's right, she's a corporate pawn. So, of course, she wouldn't be in support of an ambitious Green New Deal because she's old. She's like 100 years old. She will die long before any of the really substantial consequences of climate change come to fruition. I mean, we're already seeing it, but once Florida is underwater, she'll be long gone. And even if that weren't the case, if she was young, she's a multimillionaire, so she'd be protected. It doesn't matter. She'd be on Elysium in the event that movie were nonfiction. All the millionaires wouldn't have to worry because they'd be protected. It's vulnerable communities who really would suffer. But what does she say? Oh, the green dream or whatever they call it. Nobody knows what it is, but they're all for it. Now, the implication is that, oh, well, nobody knows what it is, but they're for it simply because, you know, with AOC, there's this cult of personality. And if she says it's something that they like, then they're just going to go along with it and not actually know the details, not care about the substance, just follow her because she's a celebrity. Actually, no. Even if people can't recite to you specifics of the Green New Deal, Nancy, what we envision with the Green New Deal is a really bold plan to take on climate change and save the fucking planet. That's what people think of when they think of the Green New Deal, regardless if they can actually point out the specifics. So this is disgusting, and Nancy Pelosi is proving more and more that she's not an ally. She's an enemy, and think about this. This came out when she said this about the Green New Deal in the same week that one of her top aides assured health executives that Medicare for all is something they never have to worry about because she's not going to let that happen. That's what Nancy Pelosi is all about, but yet these neoliberal Democratic Party loyalists think that she's amazing. They'll say, oh, well, she's like the best because she didn't cave to Donald Trump and got him to reopen the government. It wasn't the workers that got him to reopen the government. It was her, simply because she did her job for once and didn't cave. Like, they just, it, it irritates me. It irritates me that well-meaning liberals, not progressives, but liberals, they don't realize that Nancy Pelosi is not fucking progressive. See, she is a socially liberal Republican, and she's your enemy. She's your enemy. She's blocking progress. But nobody realizes this. They all think that she's an effective leader. Yeah, she's really effective. She's effective at stopping progressives. So it's just, it's so irritating to me that everyone just loves Nancy Pelosi in the mainstream media. But yet, 
They don't acknowledge the fact that she is not your friend. She is the enemy. And it, it just it drives me nuts. I don't know why it gets under my skin so much, but it's like they're they're trying to make her into something that she's not. Like Hillary Clinton. Oh yes, queen, she slayed. Yeah, she she clapped back at, at you know at Donald Trump on Twitter. Shut the fuck up. God, they're so stupid. To shit on a Green New Deal, Nancy, when it's basically the only thing that has given millennials like myself and Gen Z any hope whatsoever that maybe we won't fucking die due to climate change. I mean, it just shows that you're, you're not an ally and you're a bad person. And what we need to do is get Nancy Pelosi out of power. She doesn't care about anything. When does Nancy Pelosi ever talk about ambitious policy proposals? She never talks about policy. Never. You never hear her talking about policy because Nancy Pelosi doesn't care about policy. Nancy Pelosi cares about Nancy Pelosi. That's all she cares about. As she clings to power for dear life, refusing to relinquish power to someone even just nominally more liberal than her, we're all suffering because this oligarch wants power. This multi-millionaire who lives in a mansion who doesn't know what you're dealing with wants more power. That's what we have to deal with. So this is why people who are wondering why I criticize Democrats so much, you see, the thing is that everyone knows that Republicans are morally reprehensible. They're fascist. They're off the fucking spectrum. But when it comes to Democrats... Since they speak using flowery language and, you know, unity rhetoric, a lot of people believe that they support what we all support, believe that they're liberal, but they're not liberal. They may be socially liberal, but economically speaking, they are killing us. They're killing Americans, and now, apparently, they want to kill humanity because she says this is just one of many suggestions that we receive. Um, but are they actually this bold and ambitious? No, they're not. Hence why this one is so incredibly popular. But, you know, I'm, I feel like, you know, ranting and raving about Nancy Pelosi, it's going to fall on deaf ears because the only people who know that she is a terrible human being are progressives. But normal people, well-intentioned people, people who I respect, who are at least progressive when it comes to policy, they just don't understand that Nancy Pelosi isn't their friend. February 1st, as you all know, the oral arguments for the lawsuit against the FCC for their repeal of net neutrality began, and this was a hearing that was, I believe, longer than five hours. It was incredibly long, and a lot of the discussion centered on whether or not broadband can and should be characterized as telecommunications. Now, for more on this case, we go to John Brodkin of Ars Technica, who reports a Federal Communications Commission lawyer faced a skeptical panel of judges today as the FCC defended its repeal of net neutrality rules and deregulation of the broadband industry. FCC General Counsel Thomas Johnson struggled to explain why broadband shouldn't be considered a telecommunications service and struggled to explain the FCC's failure to protect public safety agencies from internet providers blocking or slowing down content. Of the three judges, Circuit Judge Patricia Millett expressed the most skepticism of Johnson's arguments, repeatedly challenging the FCC's definition of broadband and its disregard for arguments made by public safety agencies. She also questioned the FCC's claim that net neutrality rules harmed broadband investment. Circuit Judge Robert Wilkins also expressed some skepticism of FCC arguments, while Senior Circuit Judge Stephen Williams seemed more amenable to FCC arguments. 
In other words, it's going about as we expected. Um, Williams, if you'll recall, is the individual who actually wrote a dissenting opinion back in 2016 when a court he was on voted to uphold Obama-era FCC regulations. Net neutrality regulations specifically. So we know that this individual is against net neutrality, but Millette, we kind of expected her to be an ally because she is a fairly liberal judge. She's been kind of positioning herself as the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is great. And in this case, it's very clear that she's not buying their pro-corporate argument, which is fantastic. Now, I love that she's not buying their argument that, oh, well, you know, if if we have net neutrality, that's going to hurt investment because we're finding out that the opposite is actually true. Once the FCC codified their Title II net neutrality protections into law, well, investment increased. But now, ever since the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, investment decreased. Not even kidding about that. Now, does that mean that investment in general has anything to do with net neutrality? No, it doesn't. They're not correlated, and that's the point. But these internet service providers had already planned to decrease investment. So the fact that Ajit Pai used that argument, perhaps being ignorant about their intentions to decrease investment the following year after he repealed that neutrality, not a good look for him. But getting into the specifics here, in order to deregulate broadband, the FCC argued that broadband itself isn't a telecommunications service and is instead an information service. Johnson said that broadband is an information service because internet providers offer DNS, domain name system services, and caching as part of the broadband package. DNS and caching are determinative here because they allow broadband users to perform all the functions listed in the definition of an information service, e.g. acquiring, storing, and processing information, he argued. But the DNS slash caching argument didn't seem to satisfy Millette. She repeatedly asked Johnson why the FCC still considered telephone service to be telecommunications, despite ruling that broadband isn't. I'm having a lot of trouble understanding how the FCC's description of broadband wouldn't also apply to telephone service, she said. Like broadband, telephone service is constantly used to acquire and share information, Millette said. She used the filling of medical prescriptions as an example. Someone can call a pharmacy over the phone and use their voice or push a series of buttons to get a prescription filled, just as they can get a prescription filled by going to a doctor's website, she said. It seems to be the exact same functionality, but one is voice and one is typing, she said. So based on everything that I've read thus far, it seems as if Millet is not buying the FCC's argument one bit, and I'm really hoping that she'll be an influential force on the court and convince the other judges to not go along with the FCC here and actually rule against them because it's very clear that they don't have the right argument on their side. Everything that they said they needed to repeal net neutrality for, such as broadband investment. Well, it shows that that's not actually the case. If you say that net neutrality hurts broadband investment, but investment actually decreases once you repeal supposedly harmful regulations, that's not helping your argument. And when it comes to telecommunications, really what they're trying to argue, the FCC anyways, is trying to argue based on semantics. But what Millet is saying is, that doesn't really make sense. Your argument doesn't make sense. Your reason, reasoning for repealing net neutrality is not sufficient. Now, another thing that is coming back to bite the FCC in the ass is, well, when you impose these sweeping regulatory changes, you're supposed to consider the impact on the public and public safety. But 
when we found out that Verizon was throttling the internet of Santa Clara County firefighters in California as they were fighting firefighters, that is now coming back to bite them in the ass because that was brought up in court as well. Quote, Millette grilled Johnson on the public safety topic. Post hoc remedies don't work in the public safety context. And unless I missed it, that was not addressed anywhere in the repeal order, Millette said. Johnson responded that the burden ought to be on them, the public safety agencies, to show concrete evidence of harm. Millette cut in, saying, why is the burden on them? The statute repeats again and again that public safety is an important goal. You had comments from the public expressing concerns, a lot of them. It seems like you have a statutory obligation. You had a lot of comments, a serious issue that should have been addressed by the commission in the order. That's not a burden on them. And this is glorious to hear her grill them for that, because why would it be incumbent on the public safety agencies, for example, the fire department, to bring up this issue? Oh, well, we we can't have you throttle our internet because that could be harmful to our efforts to fight fires. Why would that be on them? You're the government agency that's supposed to take the time to listen to feedback before imposing all of these sweeping deregulatory changes. But you chose not to do that. So why would that be on them? And, and it's clear that their argument isn't landing. And I love that it's not landing because hearing the justification for the FCC's repeal of net neutrality is mind-numbingly fucking dumb. It's so stupid, I don't know how anyone can buy it. So the fact that they even have a chance of winning in court is absurd to me. But nonetheless, in spite of what Millette is saying, she's just one judge. So I don't want you to get too overconfident here because it may very well be the case that the other two judges rule against everyone and rule in favor of the FCC. So this is just the very first day of oral arguments here that we're going over. And I'm expecting this to be a very long and lengthy legal battle. So we will see how this turns out. Thus far, it seems as if the FCC isn't having an easy time convincing the judges, at least one judge, that they were justified in repealing net neutrality. So if they can find anything to strike down this repeal, any one thing, then that will be fantastic for us. And it seems as if they have more than enough reasons to strike down this repeal. So I hope the FCC loses. But again, it's only the beginning I will keep you updated on this lawsuit as it goes forward. Um, it's certainly going to be interesting, and I will be, uh, I'll be glued to this case looking for any and all details when it comes up, and I'll be sure to tell you guys about it. You know, Donald Trump, for someone who has never really been known for his religiosity with his 2 Corinthians gibberish and, you know, him just being a generally shitty person and adulterer, you'd think he wouldn't really do much to destroy the separation between church and state, but I think he's more effective at doing this than evangelicals like George W. Bush were, because we all know that he essentially gutted the Johnson Amendment early in his administration, which allows churches to engage in political activity without worrying about losing their tax-exempt status, and now he's endorsing a move that is a brazen violation of the Constitution. Now, as Camilo Montoya Galvez of CBS News reports, President Trump appeared to endorse efforts by legislators in several states to allow public schools to offer Bible classes. Numerous states introducing Bible literacy classes, giving students the option of studying the Bible, starting to make a turn back 
Great, Mr. Trump tweeted Monday morning after Fox and Friends ran a segment on the topic. Christian lawmakers in six Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country are pushing for legislation that would allow public schools to offer elective classes on the New and Old Testaments. The push by conservative legislators in Florida, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, Virginia, and West Virginia has stirred some controversy. Critics of the proposals, including the American Civil Liberties Union, argue that public school classes on the Bible would jeopardize the separation of church and state enshrined in the First Amendment to the Constitution. Alabama, Iowa, and West Virginia have also considered Bible literacy bills, but all of the measures were voted down, according to the Fox News report. But in Kentucky, Republican Governor Matt Bevin signed legislation in 2017 to allow public school students to take Bible and Hebrew scriptures classes. A year ago, in January 2018, the ACLU of Kentucky expressed concern to the Kentucky Board of Education after an Open Records Act investigation found that many courses violated constitutional requirements that say that religious texts used in classrooms must be secular, objective, and not promote any specific religious view. The ACLU said it found public school teachers using the Bible to impart religious life lessons and use of Sunday school lessons and worksheets for source material. These are not academic approaches to objective study of the Bible and its historical or literary value, the ACLU pointed out. So this is undoubtedly a violation of the Constitution, which the Republican Party claims to care so much about. This is something that Republican governors are doing. And Donald Trump just endorsed this effort via tweet, which will embolden them more so than they've ever been emboldened. Because While these Republican governors do things to destroy that wall between religion and state, former Republican administrations like Bush were less inclined to just cheer them on like this. I mean, he certainly did do his part, don't get me wrong, but, you know, what Trump said here in that tweet, Bible literacy classes, I mean, he's not even trying to hide it. Wow, that is just, it's so brazen. Now, if you are a Christian and you're wondering, Mike, what's the problem? Well, think about it this way. In the event... There were Quran literacy classes or Satanist literacy classes where they didn't just examine it in an educational and academic light. They actually taught it as if it were a Sunday school class. They taught the Quran. They taught you how to obey the Quran or worship the devil. Would you be okay with that? Would that be acceptable to you? Public schools, public dollars cannot go towards this. Nobody is saying that the Bible can't be examined in an educational way, as the article states, for historical or literary value, which there's not much there, but nonetheless, you can still look at it in an academic way. But to teach it as if it were a Sunday school class, well, now you're just openly violating the Constitution. But Republicans don't necessarily feel worried about just outright violating the Constitution, because think about this, who just got confirmed to the Supreme Court? Brett Kavanaugh. And the Supreme Court now has a conservative majority that is very strong. So no matter how brazen whatever law some Republican-controlled state comes up with that violates the Constitution, so long as it's Republican-approved, the Supreme Court will most likely not strike it down when they should. Or in the event they don't strike it down, they might just choose to not hear it so it can continue to remain in effect, as was the case with the, um, where the baker of, I think it was a Colorado bakery, just brazenly decided to discriminate against same-sex couples. 
They knew it was unconstitutional, but they didn't want to hear the case because they know they can't actually justify it being legal because it's brazenly unconstitutional. You have a baker who offers wedding cakes, but only offered them to heterosexual couples and not gay couples. That is discrimination. They know that they, they couldn't justify that, so they just chose to turn a blind eye and let it continue to go on. That's essentially what the court would do here. So, I mean, they can get away with these brazen violations of the Constitution and really nothing can be done about it. If you want to subvert the authority of the Supreme Court and the courts, then you've got to get a constitutional amendment. Can you imagine anything being um, adopted as a constitutional amendment in this day and age? Of course not. So what Donald Trump is doing here is destroying the separation of church and state, not because he in, he personally has this individual level connection and you know love for the Bible and Jesus. He's doing it because he's pandering to his base and probably because Mike Pence is in his ear. So this is just, you know, another way that Republicans are choosing to violate the Constitution. But what they're not realizing here is they're opening the door up to satanic classes and Quran classes because the satanic temple, they've been phenomenal at challenging violations to church and state because whenever there is, you know, a public monument to the Ten Commandments, they make sure that they get their very own, you know, satanic-oriented monument as well. So, if you don't want your kids to have the option of taking a satanic course, then uh, I suggest you don't do this. So, I mean, that's really what they're opening the door to here. But, you know, it's just, this is something that probably won't get much attention, but it's very harmful because the separation of church and state, it matters. It's what differentiates America from other countries. So even if we've all had a ton of fun dunking on Howard Schultz recently, somehow Michael Bloomberg has escaped criticism. And he's escaped criticism in part because he actually instructed Howard Schultz publicly to not run as a centrist independent and to instead run within the Democratic Party. And a lot of people are saying, oh, well, thank you, Michael Bloomberg, for talking some sense into him and, you know, not doing something that could harm the Democratic Party's chances of defeating Donald Trump in 2020, whomever the nominee may be. Thank you, Michael. But what people forget is that in 2016, Michael Bloomberg was basically floating what Howard Schultz is floating now. He was considering jumping in the race in the event Hillary Clinton lost. In the event Bernie won and we saw a Bernie versus Trump matchup in 2016, Michael Bloomberg was actually threatening to spoil the election then. And he actually was irritated that Hillary Clinton was even doing anything to reach out to progressives. He said that she was moving too far to the left to appease Bernie Sanders. So before we shit on Howard Schultz too much, I need us to not forget about how Michael Bloomberg is the original individual who made this a possibility. He maybe gave Howard Schultz the idea that running as an independent, you know, to uh, as a centrist independent to tank the election is a good idea. He's the one that came up with this. Now, back in 2016, I believe it was January 31st, I did a segment on this, and I was incredibly pissed off. And this was one of my first rants. Back then, I was very soft-spoken because I was still a little bit nervous and unsure of myself, and now I just don't give a shit. But um, this was one of my first, like, really big rants on the show. And I watched it again, and I wanted to share it with you guys because 
I think that what I said then is still true now. It's just applicable to Howard Schultz instead. So we'll give you this flashback, just a fun old clip of me ranting about Michael Bloomberg being a greedy prick. And keep in mind that what I said then, you know, it's basically true now for Howard Schultz and we should all dunk on Michael Bloomberg as well. So what you want is someone in office who's mainstream, uh, i.e. establishment, who's actually going to fight for your interests, who's going who's gonna to continue to give tax breaks to billionaires and fight for you and not the little guy, right? So the fact that Bernie Sanders is actually doing great, that actually really scares you. So you want someone in there who's going to perpetuate the status quo where our uh, American oligarchy can control everything and can control Congress, right? Oh, okay, okay, so this is a clear case of if I don't get my way, I'm going to throw a temper tantrum and run as a third party and ruin it for everyone. Well, unfortunately for you, you might not actually be able to spoil this election after all. So in a three-way hypothetical matchup against yourself, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders beats both of you. That's right. The individual who is fighting for the peasants and plebeians beats two billionaires. That has got to be a blow to your ego. I mean, if you're a billionaire, you got to have an ego, uh, but damn, <laughs> you need to ice that burn, Mike. Now, I just have a question for you. Your net worth is $41 billion. You are the seventh richest person in the country, the 13th richest person in the world. You basically will never be able to spend all that money, even if you live to be a thousand years old. And even in spite of this fact, you still want more money. You want an establishment candidate who's going to continue to give you more tax breaks. When do you stop? I mean, you have $41 billion. At what point do you just throw your hands up and say, you know what? I'm good at $41 billion. I mean, do you want to get to $100 billion? Do you want to get to a trillion? When does the greed stop? You're never, ever going to be able to spend all of that money in your lifetime. doesn't matter how long you live. Even if you had $1 billion, how are you going to spend all that money? I mean, that is an amount of money that is unfathomable to us. We can't even picture it in our heads because it's such a huge quantity of money. It's seemingly infinite to a lot of us who are basically living off of scraps. So my question is, when is enough enough for you? When are you going to check out and say, look, I'm 73 years old. I think I'm good with what I got. When do you do that, Michael? I don't give a shit about your philanthropic endeavors. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many charities you've donated to. The fact is, is that you're sitting on $41 billion. There are diseases that need to be cured, okay? There are people starving. You can feed countries in Africa with that type of money. And yet you want more for yourself. You want to hoard more money. Not only does that make you someone who is ignorant, of the world, it just makes you a bad person. Yes, having that much money, an unfathomable amount, makes you a bad person, Michael Bloomberg, because you are sitting on money that could be saving lives. But you are so goddamn greedy that we can't even have the candidate that we want for president, right? So if we pick Bernie Sanders, you are threatening to steal the election from us. When does it end? That's all I'm saying, I wanna know. When is enough enough?
Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. For those of you who want to support us, you can do so by visiting humanistreport.com slash support or by checking out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. I'm Mike Figueredo. This has been the Humanist Report. Thank you all so much. I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the show. See you next week. Take care.